Welcome back to Let's Jaws for a Minute, the podcast which takes a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's classic film, Jaws, minute by minute, or thereabouts. I'm your co-host, MJ Smith. And I am Sarah Buddery, and we don't have a guest again this week, so we will go straight into talking about this week's scene. Uh, Quite a long scene this week, or a bit Mm -hmm. longer than when we had uh, last week anyway, so the timestamp of this week's scene is from 1 hour 36 minutes and 23 seconds to 1 hour 38 minutes and 20 seconds, uh, which is 1 minute and 57 seconds, uh, which I have written in my notes. Uh, <laughs> so sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> Just in letting this... me have it left and right today, huh? <laughs> Come on, you'd expect nothing less. Um, So in this scene, we see Quint and Hooper. Well, we don't really see them. They are working below the decks on the orca, um, trying to fix things and uh, grabbing tools and everything. We sort of see their hands popping up. Brody is uh, steering or trying to steer the boat uh, up the top and having some problems with that. Then we see the yellow barrel pop up behind the orca, which Brody sees. Uh, Hooper and Quint are then sort of trying to, with the boat hook, uh, get the get the rope and attach it to the back of the boat so that they can sort of lead the lead the shark in. I guess is the plan. Um, Quint uh, gets his hand cut on the rope uh, because the shark makes a sudden appearance, uh, and then Brody heads inside to make a phone call, and that is where we leave it, and we leave it on a real cliffhanger uh, the the still of which MJ has put into the Discord chat for me, and it is Quint looking into our very souls um, so you have to wait until next week for the, the resolution of that and, and what happens next, but um, plenty to talk about in this week's scene so um, MJ, over to you first uh, with anything that you noticed in this week's scene yeah, uh the first thing I want to talk about is just how great of a shot the uh it is with the uh the just the hands coming up and grabbing stuff. <laughs> it's so great. It's it's that's one of my favorite shots in the entire film is uh these sort of like Adams family esque um <laughs> fixing the boat shots of Quentin Hooper and then watching them like they're almost working in sync with each other like their hands are popping up at the same time um they're grabbing stuff and bringing it down and even when they come out like after after brody says hey there's the barrel they come out at the exact same time um i think that's such like a great example of the group dynamic stuff we've been talking about and just how hooper and quint's relationship has evolved over the even the last you know five six minutes of the film Mm-hmm. yeah i i put that down in my notes actually it's one of the first things i wrote is that this is like peak performing um mm-hmm. and i think that i appreciate this moment between quint and hooper even more now that we have sort of brought this group dynamics thing into it because it's one of those things that like when you brought it up it just seems so super obvious how well that applies 
to Jaws, but I've never sort of really heard about that that piece of research before or sort of thought about it in the context of Jaws anyway. So um, yeah, really love that bit between between Quint and Hooper. And I think as well, it's great that, I mean, you can guess whose who's hands are who, because I think you can, the way that Quint is sort of gesturing when he's get, getting Brody to do something, you can tell that sort of Quint is uh, closer to us and Hooper is the one further away. But for a minute, you're kind of like, they're working in such perfect synchronization that it's almost like, well, which one is which? One is which? Um, and I think that that's really, really important. And something that I I noticed is reflected in the the costume choices in this scene as well, is that Quint and Hooper are dressed really alike in this yeah. scene. <laughs> um, certainly colour palette wise, and I spotted that the when they're sort of at the back of the of the orca and they're sort of leaning over in a sort of similar position. And they're both wearing blue uh, on the top. So Hooper is wearing like a, a light blue sweater and Quint is wearing this sort of blue denim kind of shirt um and then sort of like a gray a gray pant um on both of them so it's just a, a like a nice subtle thing but when you sort of see them next to each other I'm pretty sure they didn't wake up that morning and be like hey <laughs> blue tops gray pants day yeah and yeah. Uh, a little high five as they chose their their matching outfits or anything but <laughs> It's just uh, <laughs> I now I, I mean, am now imagining we, that. We don't <laughs> actually know whether that happened or not. So yeah, and and they deliberately left Brody out of it. They're like, ah, he's put on the black turtleneck again. <laughs> the chump didn't get the uh, didn't get yeah. the blue top gray pant memo. Um, <clears> they walk out and chump. see Brody and then high five again. Yeah, <laughs> we're like chose not to share. That Got him. Yeah, real real bromance uh, yeah. developing here, but. I think it was just a really a really great sort of subtle way again of of showing that this is about the the sort of best we see between Quint and Hooper in terms of their relationship. They sort of had that bonding moment um before the Indianapolis speech where they're they're sort of getting on like a house on fire and talking and comparing scars and having a drink and everything else. And that has sort of broken the ice. Um and now they are able to actually function together as a team and work together as a team and i just like the way that that is reflected um in what they're wearing and just another note on the the costuming is that um quince shirt in particular is like pretty much almost the exact same color of the sky and it's just a really pleasing mm-hmm. thing to look at um because the sky in this scene is particularly blue <laughs> that there's a great shot of like the back of the orca and you see the yellow barrel pop up which sort of adds like a really nice uh contrast bright color but also the the sky looks really really blue and obviously the the clothes that they're wearing similar colors and tones as well so i i it's a very visually pleasing uh scene to look at this one yeah um oh hang on i need to look something uh so, also, speaking of the costuming, uh, mm-hmm. welcome back to MJ's Jaws' Vietnam corner. <laughs> uh, and, like, if you look at the way Quint is dressed here, you'll see, if you look at um, pictures of the Vietnam War or media that takes place around the Vietnam War, you will see soldiers oftentimes 
wearing a loose-fitting, very functional shirt with a bandana. Mm. Um, and obviously the, the gentleman in the, the picture I just sent is... That's... What? Um, so that one's not going to work. Uh, he's wearing his, his, his jacket over it. But then look at this screenshot from Platoon. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. The Deer Hunter. Yep. <laughs> um, both films followed Jaws. Platoon was 1980, I believe, and Deer Hunter was 1978. Um, but it's exactly the same costume in a different color, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, with the bandana and the, the kind of loose, like, top button or two undone shirt. Um, and Quint's a, you know, he's a war vet. He's, he's a, a, a World War II guy, but this takes place in the Vietnam era. And something you have to keep in mind is that Vietnam was the first televised war, which I think is one of the reasons among the many that it, it, it just, it, it wasn't as well received as something like World War II is because people got an up close view of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, on the war front and they hadn't been exposed to that ever before really because while Korea was happening while TV was invented it was not it was in the early days of television you know every home did not have a set a television set yet and by the time Vietnam rolled around they did so it was also the first war I think that they'd seen in color really mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, it's way easier to take the aesthetic of that and drop that into this film, Mm -hmm. but it's still pretty subtle and I don't think people would really pick up on it immediately, um, until repeat viewings are obviously something like this, but I mean, it's there. It's this is I've been waiting. I've been sitting on this take for a long time and specifically until Quint was in this costume uh, to talk about it. And I think it's I mean, I think it's incredibly obvious based on the the pictures I just shared. But um, it's just it's really subtle in its obviousness, if that makes sense. It's, It's a very it's a very nice touch that adds a lot of subtext to it but it's not a super in your face. Like I've talked about in previous weeks, it's not spelling it out for you. Like you have to do the work to make the, to connect the dots from the images of the war to what Quint is dressed like in this film. Yeah. It would, it would be super on the nose if Quint was suddenly in like a similar camo shirt, (laughs) a green or something like that. It would just be weird and out of place because as we've established previously, like Quint has got quite a limited wardrobe. I mean, he was, I'm pretty sure that's the same shirt and pant that he was wearing in the Indianapolis and earlier in the film as well. Like he yeah. is, he's not bought that many clothes with him because he's a, a you know very functional guy, very practical guy. It's the, you know, his, his sturdy and weather-worn jacket that he always has and, and, you know, the clothes, it doesn't matter if they get dirty or torn or splashed or whatever um because 
what we've established about Quint is, you know, in the way that he lives, both in in his uh, hut and on the orca as well. He's, you know, the sort of the the bare essentials, really, like the 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 bare minimum of stuff that stuff that he needs. Um, he's not bought, you know, the the Dramamine and the extra pair of socks and stuff that Brody has bought. He's, you know, come with exactly what what he needs to, and and that's all. So, um, yeah, I mean, you definitely see it in Quint's costume in in this scene in particular. I think it's just from the <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's just from the moment he has the the van the bandana on. Really, it's like he is kind of suited up and and ready for war, and we see a very different quint when he has the bandana on (laughs) it'll be interesting to track this because i think Mm -hmm. this is the first he because he wasn't wearing anything on his head in indianapolis was he he's like put this on the next the next day yeah so so this is the first time we've seen him with the bandana yes yeah exactly so definitely worth mentioning this this sort of comparison here and i i was anticipating that you that you would as well so i sort of flagged that in in my notes in that it's you know the bandana is on and like war mode quint is is engaged so it'll be interesting to see you know obviously it's just the thing that he has put on his head that day uh he probably hasn't attributed much meaning to it but how quint's personality changes based on that um and we do i think see a very different quint certainly in some of these scenes that we've we've got to we've got to go yeah and we've not actually got that much of the film left at this point as well we're Mm. what you know 20 20 or so minutes to go 24 minutes to go i think um but we do sort of see him uh acting in some ways that are quite irrational and not even like listening to his own advice as well which we see happen in this scene um i in fact, I changed it in the notes so many times because I was absolutely getting confused with this bit and the hand getting cut on the rope um, and the bit when Hooper gets trapped in the in mm-hmm. the rope. Because mm-hmm. um, you see like the rope like slice through a hand and I had it written down in my notes as as Quint and I was like, that's not right. I'm sure it's Hooper's hand that gets cut. <laughs> gets cut. And then I changed it again when I watched the scene. And I was like, no, it's yeah. Quint's hand it's that qu- gets cut. Quince, because yeah, yeah he's, he's the one who doesn't let go of the rope and it's funny because he is saying all of this stuff to to hooper and he's like he's being quite nice to hooper at this point and even when he calls him boy it's quite affectionate and different to how Mm. he's sort of spoken to him before it's not the sort of young fella kind of thing where he's he's talking to him yeah (laughs) oh bad gardener um (laughs) but it's yeah he sort of says to him as well you know when when the shark goes you've got to drop that rope or you're going to lose your hands and he sort of says you know the experience that he's seen these sort of like old navy guys in the in their homes and everything that have you know lost their fingers or whatever or fingers torn from their knuckles it's quite graphic the the description of it um and then what do we see we see you know the shark pop up and Hooper drops that rope like it is on fire. Like he yeah. drops it so quickly. <laughs> and Quint is the one still left like holding the rope. Um and it slices through his hand. So it's not you know, he's he's not taking on his his own advice, even though he is still focused on the mission and what it is they need to do. There is something different about this Quint. The post Indianapolis Quint is a different one to the one that we have seen mm-hmm. previously. He is 
on the one hand incredibly focused and you know battle ready with his bandana on sort of ready to do the the final bit of the job but also and this is what we've been talking about the last few weeks with this reliving what happened in the the indianapolis and the the ptsd of it all Mm -hmm. he's kind of going through all that stuff as well so he's not thinking as clearly as i think he is trying to to let on to the others if that makes sense no it does it makes perfect sense and also um i'm gonna follow this this is brand new analysis hot off the mj brain presses (laughs) uh that Hooper represents the young men drafted into the war. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's obviously, I think, the younger, the youngest member of the the main three. Um, Mm -hmm. But he's pulled in from not Amity, right? He's not a local. He wasn't, he doesn't have previous military experience if we're going with that. Whereas Brody and, 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 uh, and Quint do. And by military, I'm not talking about actual military. I'm talking about Amity being sort of a military type of thing. Like this is very allegorical is, is, is how I'm, I'm describing this. So he's brought in as the outsider into this war that he doesn't really know anything about, um, that he hasn't been dealing with the last couple of days. And we see him go from being kind of young and bright-eyed and very excited about the science to being like, I, I mean, what does he say? Uh, that, Quint, if we can get close enough, I've got things on board that'll kill it, right? Mm-hmm. This is, this is he's, he's left beautiful darling in the dust <laughs> at this point and has become very jaded about this. You know, he's, he's, mm-hmm been brought under Quint's wing and command, essentially, um, to learn to, you know, view this shark as an enemy. And then also the attack on the orca that happened the night before, uh, which is obviously much more calculated than a shark would actually be. But um, within the context of the film, and obviously it's not going to be a one-to-one representation of reality, um, it's it's essentially attacking them under cover of night, right? Much like in Vietnam, you saw the, you know, soldiers using the jungle as cover. It's using the, the darkness of the water at night as cover. And maybe even kind of taking advantage of them while they have their guard down a little bit. And I came to this conclusion because while I was looking for those Vietnam things, um... I came across, obviously, that picture of De Niro and the Deer Hunter. But look at this other picture of De Niro and the Deer Hunter. And pay particular attention to his hat. Mm-hmm. A very Hooper-esque hat. <laughs> it's almost identical to the, uh, the trawler hat that Hooper mm-hmm. is wearing when he arrives on Amity. And this mm-hmm. shot is before... De Niro's character goes to the war in The Deer Hunter. Hmm. Huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big huh. Um, yeah. <laughs> but also, uh, to, to follow, follow it through, I think this is kind of the last of my Vietnam analysis, but, um, you know, it... 
It's made while the war is still happening in 1974. War ends in 1975. But the plot of the movie is about a group of men heading into the home of a mysterious enemy. And I'm going to use that word in quotes here because it's essentially just minding its own business. Um, And if the people would have just stayed the hell out of the water for a few days... The shark would have gotten hungry and moved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But because of the bumbling nature of the leadership on Amity, they've made this a much bigger threat than it ever needed to be. That's necessitated this mm-hmm. course of action to go and hunt and kill the shark. Yeah. That it, it's a lot, isn't it? To yeah. I mean, I'm really just <laughs> look at those two pictures of De Niro, and I'm just very distracted by uh, the the Hooper of it all, um, <clears throat> yeah. particularly in the the one with the hat. But yeah, it's I it has to be deliberate. I think the the things that are in in this film and what it is saying about the time, because you're looking at the time that this film came out and and yes it is is based on the book which which came out before but it wasn't i mean when did the book come out it wasn't that long before the film was it no i want to say it was 71 oh wait 74 huh okay yeah shit (laughs) (laughs) they turned that around real quick yeah Um, they did Yeah, I find it out in real time as well. I just Googled it and was like, oh, yeah, so 74. So, yeah, even, I mean, it's been a minute since I've read the book and I'm not super keen to go back to it just because mm-hmm. we've made our thoughts on the book um, quite clear. But I think certainly in the the way things are presented visually in Jaws, it's really easy to make those connections with the things that are, that were happening at the time. Um and when this sort of evidence is <laughs> staring you in the face with Quint's costume in particular, I think it's just, it's impossible to ignore, really. And I would like to see, I mean, I'm always open to other people's conflicting uh, ideas and discussions if they've, you know, been been well thought out and everything else. So mm-hmm. if someone is like, absolutely not, there's no way that Jaws is in any way (laughs) um about vietnam in the slightest way i would love to i would love to hear why you think that and that's not me trying to be facetious or anything i genuinely would be interested to sort of like hear the other side of it because i see all the evidence and i'm like yeah (laughs) it's it's clear as day uh to me um and to continue another one of our long running things that we've been picking up on uh which this isn't the last you're going to hear of it because we've still got quint's death to come um but the the cut that quint has on his hand i was like can't help but see the significance in that if we're sort of running with this uh jesus allegory um that we've been we've been picking up on things for for quint and obviously one of the the wounds um when Jesus was on the cross was, you know, to the to the hand, the nails through the hand. So mm-hmm. that and we see the sort of the cut in the hand as well. There's a couple of things about that. Obviously, 
that the sort of you know comparisons with with jesus that we've been making all this time but also really really very very similar to the cut that um michael gets in his hand um right at the beginning of the film <laughs> um so one of the mm -hmm. the first mm -hmm. things we see is when michael comes in from playing outside and holds up his hand and is like oh i got bit by a vampire and we see the cut on his hand and this bit of, of Quint's injury it doesn't really dwell on the cut on his hand, but you do see it quite clearly, um, which I thought was just interesting, uh, those sort of similarities between between those two injuries. Um, and also, I think, suggesting further that, you know, yes, Brody took the bump to the head, but it was quite minor, really, whereas this is quite a, a big cut that uh, Quint has sustained and quite a big injury. So that suggestion that something bad is going to happen to to quint uh because you know blood has been spilled sort of thing and mm -hmm. if we want to take that even further it the the blood is sort of spilled like over the ocean so like quint's blood is in the water not saying the shark is now yum yum i want some quint for for my tea yeah. but <laughs> the... <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> really now just imagining the shark with like a napkin like tied yep. around its neck and a little knife yep. and fork ready to ready to have a tasty bite of quint um but yes that i think you can sort of see the the beginning of the end for quint which we've really seen since the moment he first appeared because you know <laughs> there's the the chalk drawing of the guy in the the jaws of the shark mm. um right behind him when you first see him so yeah there's there's been lots of things to suggest that what quint's fate might be but now because of because of this and that mistake with the rope despite having just said you know to hooper what he needed to do quint's blood is is in the ocean now and it's really not long after this point that we sort of see what happens to him and and the shark you know takes him um later but yeah uh, did you pick up on any of the like the the quint's hand cut significance or anything like that um, as well not till you mentioned it <laughs> um, wait <laughs> yeah i mean it, it it is definitely like almost like they're chumming the water with quint now right mm -hmm. like there's it's it's very significant um that that happens to quint because it's his blood in the water now it's his blood that the shark is after um and then especially given the nature of quint's relationship with the shark in general uh like just sharks as a, as a creature it's it's very very important and i think it also is a very smart way of kind of grounding the more fantastical elements of the film in a way that maybe some of the sequels don't um, right there's no voodoo involved there's just oh the shark has the scent of this blood and wants that um, mm -hmm. which is I think maybe not super realistic but it also is more believable right you're going to buy into that way more than voodoo curses sent upon the the Brody family um, mm -hmm. so I appreciate I appreciate something that goes out of its way to kind of explain why the dumb bullshit of its universe works. And <laughs> I think that this is definitely one of those instances because like I said, the, the shark from this point forward is now it's behaving less like an animal and more like 
a a serial killer. Like it is, mm-hmm. it is focused exclusively on this. It is, you know, it's not. I think it's at some point it would have realized that maybe this isn't worth it and just gone and started eating seals or something. But for the sake of the film, it can't do that, right? I mean, it's 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 the mm. it's the same thing about Hitchcock. Whenever people asked, "Well, why don't people in your films ever?" call the police and his response is because that's dull um, <laughs> which is true like i could you imagine how boring a hitchcock movie if someone just called the cops on whoever was doing whatever shady things were happening in a hitchcock movie the movie'd be 10 seconds long like yeah it's not window, five minutes yeah. long <laughs> yeah exactly hey i think there's a murder going on over there yeah. hello police <laughs> Hey, yeah, there's a. I think there's a murder going on over there. Police. Yeah, there is a murder going on over there. We've arrested the husband. Credits. Like, <laughs> hope your leg gets better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get well soon. <laughs> hope your leg gets better. Oh man, I really want someone to sort of do like the maybe someone has already done this it feels like something someone would do on youtube like parodies or something with films if they would just end it in like five minutes if the like sensible thing happened like if larry and jaws they were just like you know we need to close close the beaches it was like yeah all right then yeah how long a week okay sounds good yeah credits yeah and then the shark got hungry yeah end of movie so Just a real sad looking shark. Now. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> Go somewhere else for my dinner now. Dang it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so like the, the, the suspension of disbelief is one, I think very minimal for this film, but yeah. also, man, it does not matter. It is like, the, the, like I will go with, a, I, I'll go a lot of stupid places with a lot of movies. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. I guess I draw the line at Book of Henry, though, because that was the dumbest <laughs> shit ever. But, uh, you know, so but th- I think therein lies the difference. And the reason I chose Book of Henry, because no one remembers that damn movie. But it's because that movie is a definite motif on the sort of Spielberg working with kids formula. And at every turn, does it make the wrong decision? for how you get an audience to buy into that sort of situation. <laughs> and it did you see it? No, no, I've never seen it and I okay. I don't know if I plan to. <laughs> did you do you know what it's about? Do you know what happens in it? Um no, but feel free to ruin it. I will never watch it. Okay. So <laughs> the kid from Jurassic World is like this genius kid who like kind of runs his household and finds out that his next door neighbor is being abused by her stepdad or her dad. I don't remember. Um, But it's Dean Norris from Breaking Bad, which is Mm -hmm. real weird. And uh, so he plans, like he starts this elaborate plan to like kind of rescue her from that situation. Hmm. And at no point does it involve calling the police because he is the chief of police. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so already he's just written a stupid ass excuse for why they don't call the police. 
Like, he's justified that away by making this guy a cop. And it's like, Hitchcock never did that. You know? <laughs> like, um, anyway, Henry dies of cancer halfway through the movie, as you do. Mm-hmm. And, um, which was an insane twist, by the way. Like, it was just like, movie's named after the kid. <laughs> oh, it's just the book off. <laughs> yeah, that kid died. What? <laughs> So he has left this elaborate plan. This is why it's the book of Henry. He's left this elaborate plan that involves like a Rube Goldberg machine to lure him, lure the dad out of the house so that Naomi Watts can kill him with a sniper rifle. Um, And then she ends up not doing that. But then he knows that his crimes have been found out. And then he gets reported to Child Protective Services. And then he kills himself before they show up. It's a ridiculous ass movie. it's it's real stupid none of that by the way i know that's a lot of heavy subject matter all of it's funny somehow um because the movie just has no idea how to handle that and it's the most ridiculous way like it's just the most ridiculous way to handle that situation or that subject matter it's it is crazy and the thing is i saw this film in an empty theater with me and one other person and the problem with that is that it was hilarious, but it really, 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 really worked for this one other person who spent most of the back half of the movie sobbing. Um, oh, no. <laughs> so I could not laugh my head off when all this insane stuff was happening. Um, and like I said, I know that seems like a tangent, but it's just one more ridiculous thing after the other in very real world situations. Like mm. ch- child cancer is a thing. Child abuse is a thing. Uh, a particularly the ones that goes unpunished because the person who do- is doing the abuse is someone in power. Uh, you know, some- someone feeling guilt because they've been found out and taking their own life. All of that. Very real. Very, very real things that happen in life. Why, why is it that like the vast majority of people, as a matter of fact, I'm going to go ahead and say nearly everyone who saw the movie, except the one person in my theater who it worked for, uh, why are they just like, this is the dumbest thing. It should be like something like that should be not necessarily a home run because I think, I still think that's a lot of heavy subjects for one film to, 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 to try to tackle in two hours, but We've seen films with these subject matters that work, and at every corner it doesn't. And here, it's a pretty standard man versus beast kind of Moby Dick story, especially in this back half, but it works. And the fantastic elements of the shark literally targeting the boat, you just go with. Mm -hmm. And no one else has that experience. You know, there are plenty of people who have either directly unfortunately experienced the things on display in the book of henry or indirectly known someone who has gone through those experiences uh way more than they know how it is to go hunt a shark and at every turn in that film you just go uh what are we doing here what how did we end up here why are we doing this this is ridiculous like this is like a child's understanding of how the world works and in this you just go oh yeah it's a shark (laughs) you know you just go with it and uh i think that's the difference between spielberg and a lot of the people who kind of try to do the spielberg thing which you know it's funny because it's just distilled down through the the generations where it's like 
you know, we have Spielberg and then JJ and JJ does like a worse version of Spielberg and has gotten worse with age, though I do like the one that rips off Spielberg the most, which is Super 8. And then you get Colin Trevorrow, who like literally just kind of takes the Spielberg legacy in Jurassic World and just like shits all over it. Like he just <laughs> really does not it, like wants to think of himself in the same vein as himself and JJ, but really does like understands it even less than J.J. Abrams does, which is a feat. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that you can pick apart or you can try and, and pick apart Jaws and the, you know, the things that happen and say, well, this doesn't make sense and the shark wouldn't do this. And I mean, all of those things are valid. I mean, we sort of did that a couple of weeks ago. We said about, you know, the, the actual logistics of the shark sort of like ramming the side of the orca like sharks a shark wouldn't be able to like swim backwards and forwards like that quickly to to be able to do it um you know the sensible solution we came up with was it was its tail or you know the, the side of it or something which does kind of like swish about um a bit quicker the ridiculous solution was that it had a lasso um but all of the all of the things make sense enough in the film because it doesn't try to over explain everything which i think is where a film can fall apart sometimes is when it tries to i just feel like a film now like that bit with the shark where it's like ramming the side like rather than just kind of like leaving it because nothing needs to be said in that moment now you'd have you know someone standing up and be like oh it must be using its tail to do the thing we don't need to be told that like we can we can fill in these gaps ourselves we don't need to understand or explain everything because we understand enough and the film explains enough and the even the decisions that the characters make as well i mean going back to to larry and you know sort of joked about that you know if he'd have just listened and and you know to what they were saying in close the beaches then it would be a really short film indeed but him making that decision we're set up with that character to know that that is the kind of guy that he is that he puts or values money above everything else and it's only a couple of short scenes we get with him that that set up that but it's enough and then it makes that thing make sense mm-hmm. so <laughs> I just I find it really frustrating I think when a film just tries to do too to do too much or explain too much and Jaws is the perfect example example of of less is more and I did a really deep dive into um Duel recently as well um mm-hmm. which is um 1971 so Spielberg's film that was kind of like the warm up um for Jaws really and that film is so stripped back it's almost a silent film like there's hardly any dialogue in it and it is just you know the man versus beast and the beast in that case is another guy who we don't see who is you know behind the the wheel of a truck and is just sort of hell-bent on on revenge and i just a film now i think would give us like the backstory of the truck driver or it would give us like (laughs) the bulk of the film like not saying anything about him but then we would find out at the end that like Dennis Weaver's character like slept with his wife or something like do you know what I mean yeah, like we would yeah. we would get that explanation that we just don't need like you watch that film and just go 
there's this wild guy who just likes to, you know, chase down other cars and, like, ram them off the road and stuff. And we get, like, really subtle little context clues in that because I think on the front of the truck in Duel, there's, like, a load of other license plates. Yeah. Um, And I was reading about that, that it's, like, the suggestion that they're sort of, like, the, you know, the tokens of, like, the previous kills yeah. or something, which is, like, really dark when you sit back and then think about it. Um. But we get that, I, I guess we get a similar thing in in Jaws as well with how proudly Quint displays all of his shark jaws around his, his cabin. Mm. It's not that he just goes out, kills the shark and that's it. Uh, and he keeps it all sort of like hidden away. He is kind of like wearing all of those as, you know, the, the badge of honour really of like, look how many I have killed. And, you know, is, is even sort of, you know, has the other two in the pot that he's sterilizing or whatever he's doing with them cleaning them um before they sort of head out on on this trip but we just we can we can figure it out (laughs) for ourselves like what we need to know about these characters and the decisions that they're making in this in this back half of the film because all of that groundwork has been put in with the characters prior to this yeah, I mean, very, 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 very good points that I think you distilled my kind of insane book of Henry Ramble into what I was trying to say, <laughs> which is, I mean, it, it's it's oft imitated, never repeated uh, yeah. stylistic filmmaking. And uh, by all accounts, which you have seen and I have not yet, I mean, West Side Story is kind of the, 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 the latest... Uh, version of that because Mm, uh a lot of what i've been seeing is like in the high two after (laughs) west side story Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's spielberg's best directed film in years i was looking back at his sort of the films recent films and it's Mm -hmm. certainly better than the last couple i didn't get back much further than war war horse but it's 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 just it's spielberg doing the stuff that i love seeing from spielberg which is taking these risks and making bold choices and i just don't think we've seen him do that in such a long time and that is why i am just absolutely obsessed with the early films of of spielberg's career like jaws and like duel and and close encounters and so many others like from that sort of early period of his work because he was just this like ballsy kid (laughs) who was just given like all of you know his his christmas presents and his toys at once and was just like go play with them and he did and he was like doing insane things and and making making bold choices in in terms of like how he was shooting his films and and just everything about them really and i think you get to see a little bit of that in west side story it's a bit slicker and it's it's not quite back to like the heyday of, of Spielberg stuff, at least in my opinion, but it is very good. It was a lot better than I had imagined it to be because I was very off about the whole, just the film's existence really, because I love the original so much. So I was just like, I don't, do I need to see this? Like if it's just going to be, you know, a carbon copy or whatever of the of the original film, but it, it's not. It's Spielberg's version of it, and it feels very Spielbergy in the best possible way. So, we'll be interested what you think of it, MJ, when you see it. But yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I'm uh, I'm really excited to see it. I would say 
based on how you're saying maybe his best directed movie in like 10 years since Tintin. I, uh, yes. I think that's where I got to in the, <laughs> in the, the Spielberg list and was just like, well, I love that film. And I think that he yeah. made bold choices in that, yeah, in that film. And it's, it's not just necessarily what I think about the film because I, you know, there's been Spielberg films that I've enjoyed, but they've just not felt like super yeah. Spielbergy. And I, I watched that film this year for the first time after being harassed by you and Martin to watch it. So, um, and I, I saw some stuff in that that I was like, this is what I know and love about Spielberg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. But yeah, I mean, like, I, I really like Lincoln. I really like The Post. Um, but they're not su- exceptionally well-directed films. They're very good. Yeah, very serviceable. they're not, yeah, they're not, you know, Spielberg putting his full Spielberg prowess on display. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think, actually, this is a weird hot take. I think that Ready Player One maybe was supposed to be that, but it's ugly as hell and so it doesn't come across <laughs> mm. um because there's some insane camera work in ready player one yeah, where i was like man <laughs> if i could understand anything that was happening in this movie this would be awesome mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's just mud so it sucks <laughs> yeah gosh i did not <laughs> i did not get on with that film at all but like the Same we can we can talk about it more once you've seen it but like the opening shot of mm. of west side story it really had me like that's my spielberg like i was very mm. it was like a it's a really great subtle like one take but it really like dynamic camera movements and stuff as well where it sort of like takes you on this like journey to then beginning the film and like meeting the characters and into like the first song basically um, but it's just really, really cool. I've been thinking about that shot since I <laughs> since I saw the film. But there's this is the thing. Like, I mean, obviously we're you know incredibly biased in our love for Jaws, but we are on a Jaws podcast, so we are allowed to talk about how much we love it. But there are single shots like from Jaws that I just think about like all the time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, just in how well they are constructed and you know the the camera movements and the subtle one takes and there's so much like great filmmaking stuff in this film but it's not it's not super showy and i think that sometimes people struggle a little bit with spielberg to be like oh that's a spielberg thing or that's like his trademark in terms of like his filmmaking i think it's quite easy to you know in terms of like the stories like yes often you know involving involving children or you know children are a big part of the story and Mm. that's uh that sort of nostalgia thing that i think a lot of people think about with spielberg's movies as well but they struggle a bit more in terms of that there's not this distinct visual style it's not as easy to pin down but i really think there is and i think that you see it best in in Jaws and in sort of like the other films of, of this era as well. I'm going to keep coming back to Jewel because there's so much similarities between that yeah. and between that and Jaws. Um, but there's a shot that I really, really like in, in this scene actually. And you can get on to sort of talking about, about Brody in this scene as well. Um, as we haven't mentioned him that much, but just a really great shot. Like we're in Quint's perspective. It's like a really low, shot like we are below the decks with quint looking up at brody um Mm. and you again sort of see 
I think we mentioned this in another scene. I cannot remember off the top of my head which bit, but there's quite a few shots of Brody with that mast. Like he is near it, it's behind him, it's in the shot, and it is in this scene um, as well. So we're sort of looking up at him and, and that is the, the bit of the boat that he ends up on at the end of the film when he when he takes mm. down the shark so i just really like that shot i think maybe i'm thinking of the bit where i mentioned it where it was like the shark was in like the crosshairs but it was just the part of the the boat yes. that brody was stood near but again just like some great kind of subtle visual foreshadowing of what we see later but it's just a really really great shot sort of like that really low angle um looking up at Brody and putting us in in Quint's perspective I just thought was was really great and a shot that I'd not sort of picked up on before and been like that's a great shot but it's nice to still it's nice to still notice these things in in the film when you're going into it in this level of detail I think yeah well and there's also an over-the-shoulder shot of Brody um by the mast looking out at the ocean which is kind of what we see when he takes the shot that that kind of you know kills the shark mm-hmm. at the yeah. at the end there and even you could even say that like the way hooper's position he's pu- he's pushing the like the 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 pole out um that you know kind of when it starts it almost looks like brody's holding a gun like it's like mm-hmm. the, the 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 long gun barrel mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. almost uh yeah i did i did pick up on on that shot of hey wait a minute i've seen brody from this angle before looking out at the water (laughs) um i yeah this uh this scene with brody i think is really good because it shows that he um he is getting more confident on the boat um Mm -hmm. because he's like willing to go up and like help them unjam the the rudders and stuff like he's he's not as timid as he once was and like he's more willing to ask the questions now or like to communicate with them because he's like oh it'll only move three inches like he doesn't know what that means as far as what's broken on the ship but at least he's willing to stand up and say okay uh hey i i assume this is not supposed to happen mm-hmm. and it sh- it just shows how far he's come on the boat as well but it also shows how far he has to go because uh quint has huge helping your dad by holding the flashlight energy yeah towards brody <laughs> in this scene and i love that yeah i i really just enjoy the way quint gestures from all the way down there like even like brody's not looking at, at him like where he's sort of like with his arm like how he should be pulling the the wheel to try and get it to, to turn more i just really i really enjoy that but it's a great example of i mean in this scene we picked up a lot on how hooper and quint you know this is them sort of in in peak performing but i think you've got to include brody in that as well because he is not standing around useless he is needed because you know the two of them are are, are down there below the decks doing the thing that they know know how to do which is fixing fixing the boat or at least trying to Brody doesn't know how to do that but he is useful and the only way that they can tell if what they are doing below there is working is if Brody is at the top trying to you know get the get the boat to turn or or get the wheel to Mm -hmm. go further you know than three inches or whatever it is but another uh, like 
it's super subtle, but I noticed it in the scripts as well, is that um, Brody is, you know, he's he's acting as the sort of the lookout almost. You know, he is, he is involved uh, with the team, but in a way that is still from a safe distance uh if you will yeah. so the the other two are the ones you know it, it, right up in the in the water and and trying to get the rope and everything else and he's still very uh i'm safe up here but i'm useful um <laughs> useful where i am but he he spots the barrel and he alerts quint um and the thing that i noticed in in the script is that he says uh he says the barrel is up it's right in the stern and i was like Look at little baby Brody getting like the the correct terminology of the. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's not just like it's round the back. Like he's using the proper, like the proper terms and everything. I think it's just a really, again, just subtle, great way of like showing the growth in this character. Like he is getting there. It's still, you know, I mean, he he takes very decisive action in in the next scene, which we will talk about when we get to that, but he is is still sort of acting in a way that sort of he is comfortable with i think if he was like right down there trying to hook in the the barrel or something he would he would be freaking out but he's not useless he is up there he is looking out quint is not going to see the barrels if he is below the deck so he is doing the right thing by sort of alerting him but he is also kind of you know getting there with the the boat terminology and the and the 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 words that quint uses and that was i think one of the things that like when they're heading out on the orca when quint's having like a a right old joke and he's just like front bow back stern or something isn't he so i'm just like yeah brody brody was listening and i'm very proud Yeah, and he's also, like I said, willing to communicate. Like, he he isn't just freaked out by the shark now. He's not, you know, just hanging a cigarette, dumb slack jawed out of his mouth and saying, you're going to need a bigger <laughs> boat. Like, he's like, there it is. Like, he's able to name it and be like, it's here. It's at the bow. It's, you know, or it's, yeah. Um, or stern, right? What is it? Front? Stern. Yeah, stern. It's at the stern of the boat. Like, I, like he he's able to, like, communicate which he hasn't been before but i think crucially he still ends this scene scared once the shark (laughs) makes itself known um because then he immediately gives up any pretense of that kind of more confident brody and is like we need a bigger boat i'm gonna go call for a bigger boat Mm -hmm, um -hmm. and that's that's where we leave it with him in this scene but i also wanted to talk about the rope thing um i'll just i had one small point about it which is that they did great training with them because that is how you are supposed to coil anything that's it's called an over under technique Mm. to wrap up that rope i use it all the time in audio engineering for wrapping cables Um, Mm. every cable should be wrapped that way and the reason is so it won't kink up and also it kind of coils on top of itself really neatly like a snake so that if you need to quickly toss that rope out, all you have to do is grab one end of it and literally just throw it almost as hard as you can and it'll uncoil the rope in one motion. Um, We do it with mic cables all the time. So um, you over under wrap it. Next time you need to grab it, grab it off the hook, grab it off wherever it is, grab it off the pile, undo the cable tie. Toss the other end out, hold the other end in your hand, boom, your mic cable's unwrapped. It saves so much time. 
And I thought it was a really, really neat touch to have them properly wrapping the rope in this scene. Because I feel like most movies would not do that. (laughs) Um, Mm. And it does change lengths at various points. um, As far as how much each one of the characters has wrapped in their hand. Um, So there's there's like major continuity issues with that. Not a huge deal, but it did make me laugh that... uh, uh, that was happening where it was like mm. oh they're wrapping it properly oh they're <laughs> the length of rope in their hands is wildly inconsistent I it's so funny that like talking about some of the continuity things in Jaws and in the same breath talking about how little Spielberg and Scorsese care about continuity things mm-hmm. it's made me not care about continuity things yeah. I think unless it is like detrimental to the scene when it's something like this and that was you know the the best performance or the best shot or something like that it doesn't matter if that cigarette is you know changing (laughs) is not consistent with how much it has burnt down in in the scene where someone is smoking it or that length of rope looks different if that was like the best shot then that's you know that's the one that goes in the film because that stuff is kind of irrelevant when it's not detrimental to the scene and i think that i didn't even i mean it's clearly so subtle in this one that i didn't even notice it was any kind of like continuity thing because i was engrossed in what was happening and this sort of you know because i knew a shark the shark was about to pop up as well because i've (laughs) seen this film enough times like you know something's about to happen but also focusing on you know the the great example this is of Hooper and Quint working well together. You know, they're there kind of like pulling the rope together and that's the thing that matters. It's not, you know, the consistency of how much rope each one of them, one of them has. But I appreciate that they're, you know, like you mentioned as well, that attention to detail that there is in terms of, you know, that they are doing it in the correct way because of course they're 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 trained in this sort of thing like that's you know they wouldn't just be like yanking it all in and throwing it in a pile because that wouldn't be the correct way to do it so just having those little touches in there that sort of the accuracy is there even if the the continuity isn't always but i don't care i'm team spielberg and scorsese i don't care about continuity errors (laughs) does not bother me anymore um i do want to talk about this shark popping up moment because um i was surprised by how much it catches you off guard because i think maybe it's just how many times i have seen the um you're gonna need a bigger boat scene i can pinpoint the exact moment that you know the shark is gonna pop up when he says you know come down here and charm some of this shit like you know that it's right there but it does kind of creep up on you <laughs> in this moment. Yeah. So it is actually a really, really effective jump scare. It does not make me jump anymore because I've seen the film enough times, but I think I can remember in some of the times that I've seen Jaws in the theatre is that this bit is another one of the bits that makes people jump, like unsuspecting audiences. If you don't know that that's when the shark pops up, then it is gonna it is going to take you by surprise. So... I think I need to give Jaws more credit than I have done previously for having some more jump scares because I think that they they are there and they do continue in the film, but they're just quite subtle. And when you've seen a film enough times, uh, the jump scares are no longer jumps or scares. <laughs> That's just yeah. a side effect of 
of having seen it hundreds of times. <laughs> yeah, this one is great though. It's 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 really effective, and it it, it it's one of those ones that you almost forget about every time you watch it. Mm-hmm. Where like, because everyone knows you're gonna need a bigger boat. Everyone knows Ben Gardner, but this one, like, I forgot watching it for the show. I was like, oh, you see the shark in this part. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, same. <laughs> Yeah, the the bit with the shark, like, when you see it a bit more, that's one of the, the, the so after it has, like, popped up and it is sort of, like, flapping its jaws around, um, I know that's mm. one of the bits in the film where sometimes people are like, that looks silly or that doesn't look like a real shark. I personally don't care because I think that the shark actually does look really good, but um, I think it... Hmm, I don't want to say any of Jules looks silly, but like the bit where the shark like actually like leaps onto the boat, I think that has a moment of being like, hey, that's quite funny. But yeah. <laughs> but then it immediately changes with the sort of like the severity of the situation because you know what's about to happen. But I don't look at this bit and go, Oh, that's that's funny, or the shark doesn't look right or something, because it doesn't sort of go like right up close in it. You see it enough that it's it's clearly there, and I think actually you get a really good sense of the scale of the shark in that moment where you sort of see it's like full face like come up and it's almost kind of from the side and you sort of see the boat in comparison and Quint and Hooper in comparison. So I see that rather than kind of potential flaws in the shark, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely... um... The, it, it, when you see it here you, it's its mouth is just constantly moving like it's stuttering um or that like a sh- the reason sharks eat so much is because they can never stop moving their their mouth um so it i mean it looks a little silly but it's such a quick shot that it doesn't matter and then like the the i think the skin of the shark looks great like it's real slick and and mm-hmm. obviously it's wet because it's in the water but like it looks like how a shark looks to me, you know, like I haven't been up close and personal with a, a shark really ever, but in pictures and stuff where you kind of see them breaching, it looks good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing as well. And I always like to remind people when this film was made, uh, <laughs> that they didn't have the kind of technology now. And I think good enough is absolutely good enough for this film because i mean i think the shark actually looks really great but yeah it's as we have said many 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 times jaws is not all about the shark and we really don't see it that much and what we see of it is is perfectly enough because of everything else around it being so great but i've just i've, I've never i've never had a problem with it i i think it's one of those things that people find really easy to nitpick about Jaws, like particularly if they come to it later and they go, oh, it looks dated or the shark looks fake or whatever. And it's just like, okay, yes, but you are putting it against the benchmark of other films that came much, much later when, you know, CGI was a thing, but I still think there's something to be said for how tactile this shark feels and that you get this sense of this actual huge thing in the water next to them or popping up next to them that you just don't get when it's like an all CGI, very obviously them acting against a green screen type of thing. I just think that Mm -hmm. it's, 
there's so much to be said about the thing actually being there for the for the actors to act against that adds something to the film and also it's the 70s guys like leave them alone (laughs) uh yeah Yeah, it's fine (laughs) um if you listen to well we have a we have a very special bonus episode coming out semi soon Mm -hmm. and we talk about how that actually it almost adds to it um mm-hmm. the 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 phoniness the the quote phoniness of the shark because there's a very human element to it in in a regard in that there are literally humans controlling the the creature mm-hmm. um and like none of it its movement is particularly humanistic but it 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 feels a little more familiar than it probably should sometimes Uh, And that's kind of an inherent terror within the shark um, Mm -hmm. is that you can maybe kind of with this shark in particular that makes decisions like attacking the orca, you can kind of understand where it's coming from. And because you have that small bit of understanding, it makes it scarier almost. Yeah, I think actually, like you were saying earlier about, you know, there's there's certain things with the, the shark, you know like quince blood now being in the water and then and we can sort of you know buy into this idea that the shark may now sort of have this the the taste for quint and you know a, a vendetta of sorts against him without all the kind of like weird supernatural these sharks have a personal vendetta against the brody family stuff that the sequels get into so if there is something a bit like off about this shark or that's not quite exactly how a real shark would look like or behave fair enough because they there are so many things in this film that suggest this is not a shark like they have encountered before like quint has encountered before they say you know things like have you ever seen a shark do something like this before and you know they say no there's 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 clearly something that's like different about this shark so i can go with that (laughs) and be like if you know that shark is flapping his jewels around as he as he comes out of the water or is you know ramming the boat in a way that perhaps isn't how a real shark would would act i'm like absolutely fine because they have said in this film that the shark is like doing things that they that are unexpected that are not like what a normal shark does and it doesn't need to go as far as like this being some magical voodoo shark like it doesn't need to go to that place like it's enough for them to say this is unusual this is different this isn't quite what we've seen before hopefully that makes sense anyway (laughs) yeah no that makes i think that makes perfect sense and it's like it also kind of makes it scarier because of how it's it's you know i I think i talked about this already it's it's familiar yet unfamiliar all at the same time and Mm -hmm. much like the ocean is right like the ocean's a very familiar place it's also a very unknown place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I think I've covered everything in my notes, unless you have got anything else that you wanted to mention. Nope. Or oh, we have got a tasty scene next week. You are very cross that I had cut it off at the point that, <laughs> yes. we, got, that we cut it off at, um, because we get a, a great... Uh, confrontation moment between Brody and Quint uh, in next week's scene, which I'm 
very very excited to talk about so leaving everyone hanging uh this week with with quint staring into your soul uh with mischief on his mind so (laughs) come back next week uh for that scene which i'm very very excited to talk about um but yeah do you you have anything that you would like to plug mj yeah uh i was on another time mcleod for two episodes so uh i think if you're listening to this the day it's out for sure the first episode is out there um episode 17 um and i think once again if you're listening to this the day it's released tomorrow episode 18 is getting released and that has nothing to do with the kurgan which is clancy brown's character that has to do with um uh sort of the 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 scene where connor gets exiled from his his village uh because he was killed by the kurgan and then was not killed by the kurgan he he's still alive um Kind of like another famous character we've talked about quite a bit in regards <laughs> to Quint on this show. And I absolutely take it there on that episode as well. So, um, yeah, there's a, a there's that. Uh, there's our episode of the movie Robcast. Um, and then there's episode 17 of Another Time McLeod. And the McLeod is so it's a Highlander podcast, minute by minute. Um, all hosted by the Robs. Uh uh and it's another time mcleod m-a-c-l-e-o-d um is where you can find it i think it's on every major podcast platform Mm -hmm. yeah um great uh call to yums as always uh Mm -hmm. harley still needs your yums i have sent him mine tonight uh so (laughs) at time of recording was tonight um so you can still do that i don't know if you wanted to drop the audio in again mj so people can hear it or they can um go back so yeah we'll uh we'll put in now uh what it is that you that you need to do basically i want to get as many people as possible to send me audio recordings of them singing yum 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 If, if you can do that it doesn't matter what your range is, if you're higher, if you're lower than that, if whatever, whatever's comfortable for you, please, please, please do it. Uh, you can email me. It's fundamentalspod uh, at yahoo.com. Make sure I've got that right. Or you can message me on social media. It doesn't matter how you record it. If you've got professional setup, you want to send me a WAV file, it's brilliant. If you just record it on your phone and want to send it to me as an MP3 recording, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is. I would love to have it. I would love you to send it to me because what I would love to do is get as many recordings as possible of that, layer it up, and then make this as epic and as stupid as it deserves to be. <laughs> so <laughs> I can only do it with your help. Um, yeah, so you can send that to fundamentalspod at yahoo.com. Uh, we have heard a little sneaky preview of what Harley has been working on and it is great. Uh, did you get a chance to listen to it, MJ? The little clip. I have that... not. I'll do uh, that as soon as we're done recording. Yeah, it's really, it's really great. I'm very excited to hear the the final song come together. And and Harley has been working very very hard on that for us. So, um, a really fun opportunity for you guys to be involved and and have your voice on on that song. And if you can't sing, don't worry. Neither can I. Uh, it will 
blend in and you won't even be able to hear <laughs> hear you and it won't sound out of place or anything like that it will all sound great uh, as part of the the sort of the overall big picture so yeah definitely urge everyone to get involved with that um do i have anything to plug uh i mentioned that i uh we talked we talked about duel quite a lot in this <laughs> this week's episode mm-hmm. uh for good reason because that film is excellent and i did for Looper, because um, it's the 50th anniversary of that film. So as soon as I found that out, I was like, I need to write something on this film. <laughs> um, so I did a deep dive into into Duel and found out some really, really interesting stuff about the film. Uh, MJ, I was sending you stuff, wasn't I? Just like, look at this mm-hmm. absolute mad lad Spielberg and what he was getting up to making this film. It's really insane what he was doing <laughs> behind the scenes stuff on, on that film and how that film came to be. Um, it's just all really, really interesting. So if you're a fan of Jaws, I think that you should watch that film if you if you haven't already. Um, and you can check out my Looper feature on it, which I'm going to fairly confidently say will be up by the time uh, that you're listening to this. Um, it's in the edit process now, which I don't have any say over, but I'm sure it will appear on the website soon. Uh, if you go to the link in my Twitter bio, you can find the easiest way to sort of get to all the things that I'm writing over there um, and go and check that one out. But we'll probably, because of the Spielberg connection, we'll probably tweet that article out as well when it goes up. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to find us on Twitter, we are at Jaws for a minute. Uh, and if you want to find us individually, I am at Sarah Buddery and MJ is at MJSmith891. Um, so you can contact us on there if you don't use Twitter um, or social media then you can email us jawsforaminute at gmail.com and we are also on Instagram at jawsforaminute uh, which is just Instagram but we liked the pun so yeah, (laughs) Uh, Instagram it is Um, so you can find us on there and uh, a couple of ways that you can support the show so you can buy our merch through TeePublic and Redbubble um, still some time to get your Christmas gifts in, I think. So uh, go and go and check out those sites and find what you want or what you want to buy for other people. Um, the link to those is in our Twitter bio. Uh, and as always, thanks to Alex for his designs. He is at HexGhosts on Twitter if you want to find him there. Uh, you can also purchase our theme song. Um, if you go to at Kristen Falls Music on Instagram, you will find the link to purchase the song in her bio. It's also in our, also in our Twitter and Instagram link tree. Um, you can buy us a coffee, uh, which we really, really appreciate. It's just um, a little way of showing how much you love and appreciate the show, hopefully. And uh, if you donate through that, we will give you a shout out on a future episode and you will also be entered into a contest to win some merch as well. So definitely worth doing that. Um, You can also, uh, no charge uh, to you, you can rate, review and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. We've been going over some of our stats and have found... uh, We've had a pretty good year, actually, yep. um, in terms of our, our listeners and where we're placing in charts and things like that. And it's just, it's really great. I mean, I am a bit of a stats nerd anyway, so I love uh, I love hearing all of that stuff. But also just love uh, hearing what you guys think about the show. So if you want to leave us a, a review or a rating on your podcatcher of choice, then those are always really nice to read and also it helps boost our numbers as well it puts us up in the charts and in the rankings and more people can find us um and uh join in the fun and the chaos that is lj fam uh 
we're happy to have <laughs> all the people we have listening but uh yeah always uh, always keen to sort of branch out and, and reach more people as well so you can help us um by doing those things which we really really appreciate I think that is everything for this week's episode. So until next time, it's Jaws O'Clock somewhere.